Well, I'm glad to be back. I was uh, preaching in Nashville last week, and uh, I thought maybe I should wear cowboy boots and a bolo tie, but lo and behold, I got there, and it was a church just like Chestnut Mountain. They were all dressed in suits and ties, and so then I decided maybe it's just the church in Nashville and Chestnut Mountain that's keeping Joseph Banks alive. I don't know, you know. Uh, the... Uh, we did have a good time, and uh, that really is an introduction to my sermon, too, whether you believe it or not, because I'm going to talk about what you ought to wear as a Christian. Uh, now, listen, if you want to come to Chestnut Mountain in cowboy boots and a bolo tie, I know they will accept you. you you'll be just like everybody else. You wear what you want to wear to come here. Uh, we're not going to be talking about your suit and tie. We're going to be talking about something else. We're going to be talking about looking like the Lord Jesus Christ, really. We're going to be talking about humility. And I know that we preached a sermon series already on Philippians, but I had to go back to Philippians because it's my favorite uh, verse in all of Scripture, or verses in all of Scripture related to humility. So, our text for today is from Philippians chapter 2, and we'll be reading the first 11 verses. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. This is the Word of God. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation of the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a serpent, servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us respond to the reading of God's word. The grass withers... The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I think one of the reasons we don't talk a lot about humility in church is not because we're not very humble, and that might be the case, but that's not why we don't talk about it. I think it's because we don't understand what humility really is. Humility is not, you know, just kind of giving up, becoming a wallflower, letting other people run over you, that kind of thing. I mean, after all, Jesus is or was the most humble person ever lived on the planet, and at times people backed up when he came. Uh, they, they were greatly moved by his presence. So humility is not being a wallflower. Humility is having a deep understanding, first of all, of who God is and why he created you. He created you 
to glorify himself. And what does he have for you to do on this earth? Well, it is to tell other people about him and to be a witness to him on this earth, really to serve God and to serve others. So it's to understand why he made you to glorify him and to understand that you're here to serve him and to serve others. That's really what humility is. Um, When Paul was writing here to the church in Philippi, uh, there were two reasons he wrote this letter. Uh, The first is, and you find it in the fourth chapter, they had sent him a gift. And he was really overcome by that gift. Uh, I suspect that it was a life-saving gift. I mean, something that would actually keep him alive. Maybe keep him warm, uh, maybe uh, sustenance of some sort. Uh, Also, maybe his books and things that he could study. Uh, But he deeply, deeply was moved by their gracious act of sending him that gift. But there was another reason that he wrote this letter, and it's kind of woven into different parts of this letter, and that is, guess what? They weren't getting along. Now, I know you've never seen a church like that in your life, where people don't get along, but we have two uh, churches like that in the New Testament. First Corinthian is written to a church that just looks ugly. I'm telling you, I mean, after all, they're fighting over who baptized them, who led them to the Lord. They're, bap- they're fighting over um, who has the greater gift. They're even fighting over the Lord's Supper. Can you believe that? Uh, that church had a problem. Now, this is really a nice letter. The letter of, to the church in Philippi. But still, Paul had to deal with this problem, underlying this, as you can see in the first verses that we read, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. You see, what Paul is trying to do here is to bring some real medicine, if you will, spiritual medicine to a condition in the church that is serious. He is bringing what he considers to be the strongest salve that he can put on this wound. And what is that? Humility. You see, Paul knew how serious this problem was. When there is problems in the church, uh, when there is strife in the church that damages the testimony of the church and also damages the individual members of the church. And Paul believed uh, that whenever you see this kind of behavior, whether it's in a church or in a family, uh, it's a sign that Satan has come in to the body, that Satan has moved in and uh, he is doing his work among the people. Um, I think this is important not because this is a fighting church, but this is a church going through a transition. And transitions are always opportunities for Satan to kind of get into the church. After 36 years of, of one pastor transitioning into another pastor, the enemy would, do, would like nothing better than to sow 
envy and distrust and dissension and conflict. And we as a body of Christ always have to be guarding our health. We need to guard our unity, our mutual respect, our love for one another. I would encourage you to be in prayer. Prayer for your church. Prayer for your session. Prayer for your search committee. Prayer for the interim pastor that's coming. Pray that everybody will have the garment of humility on them as they as you worship together and as you work together. I belong actually on the board of an organization that's trying to raise up young leaders. It's a pretty, I mean, the guys that are in this program, the young men, you have to be 21 to 35. Uh, they're awfully impressive men. Uh, I, I tell them all the time, I'm on the board, uh, but had I been 21 to 35, I never would have gotten into this organization in the first place. But the leader told me recently, he says, Paul, whenever you talk to these men, you're always talking about humility. You must really have to deal with a lot of pride in your life. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, that's probably true, but that's not why humility is so important to me and ought to be important to you. The reason that it ought to be important to you is because it is important to God. You see, we've read already in verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ came into this world humbling himself so that he could save you. I like to say that the only person that had no reason to be humble on this earth is the only person that actually was truly, fully humble. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is our example. The reason we ought to be concerned about this subject is because we want to look like the Lord, right? We want to act like him. We, we want to behave like him. We want people to look at us and see Jesus. And they're not going to see Jesus in our lives unless they see the same humility that he exemplified when he came into this world to save us. I think there are three reasons why we don't teach much about humility. The first is, it's not natural to think like this. I mean, who wants to get run over and that looks like that could happen if you humble yourself? And nobody wants bullies to win, you know, and so why should we humble ourselves? You know, and even the idea uh, that uh, we, uh, we let others get first place because it's honoring to the Lord, that doesn't taste too good, really, if you think about it, not from our human perspective. Secondly, uh, some people don't teach about humility because they think if you talk about it too much and you think you got it, you don't. Um, I've actually heard a, a great preacher, a very famous preacher, and he, he said, I never preach on humility because I don't want people to think about it, because if they think about it, they will lose it. Well, I, I, to be honest with you, I think that's foolishness. The Bible doesn't dodge humility at all. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, then I will forgive them and heal their land, 2 Corinthians 7.14. With humility comes wisdom. 
Proverbs 11.2, for everyone who exalts himself will be humble, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 14.11, be completely humble and gentle. Genesis, uh, Ephesians 4.2-6, therefore clothe yourselves with humility. Colossians 3.12, God shows favor to the humble. James 4.6, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up in due time. 1 Peter Chapter 5. You see, the Bible doesn't dodge the subject of humility at all because it's extremely important. God wants you to not only think about humility, but by the power of his spirit, he wants you to live by humility. Finally, I think we don't teach about it a lot because we don't think it'll even work. That's not the way things work. If you're going to do anything in this world, you've got to make your own way. You've got to clear the deck. You've got to... Cut your own path, you've got to, or, or people say if you snooze, you lose. Um, Metrax in his book on Bonifer um, says, uh, actually quotes Hitler. Uh, supposedly Hitler said this, it's in the book. Uh, it's pitiful that we have to have in this country the religion of Christ. After all, the Japanese, they have a religion of sacrifice to the fatherland. And even that religion of Muhammad is better than the meekness and flabbiness of Christianity. You see, that's the way people think. But if you want to be strong in the Lord, you're going to have to be humble. This is God's way. I think it's actually built into the very fabric of the universe. It may be a little dangerous to say, I think God is humble, but you see in the relationship with the father with his son that the, the father is always loving the son. It's always going in that direction. He delights more than anything else to love the son. That takes a bit of humility. And the son tells us, I always do the will of the father. He always humbles himself before the father. And, and then you see the Holy Spirit. What does he do? He is the one who doesn't teach about himself. Uh, Uh, John chapter 16, he didn't come to teach about himself. The Holy Spirit comes to teach about me. That is Jesus' words. He will teach you about who I am and so on. In in, uh, John's gospel and uh, in the uh, the 17th chapter, we read in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me, where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. You see how that humility uh, seems to really to be to be built right into the foundation or the uh, the um, creation itself. And as I look around, I would say the reason things are such a mess is because there's so little humility. Government, what do you see? Do you see any humility? Families, often we find strife in families. If you dig down, you'll find there's not much humility. 
businesses. What's the problem? Pride. Pride is what is destroying relationships at every different level. And C.S. Lewis said of pride that it's the granddaddy of all sins. In fact, he said that pride is what made the devil the devil. He went on to say adultery, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites compared to pride. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. You get that? Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is the greatest attack on God. Everything else actually emanates from pride. And so it's no wonder then that humility is so important. When God wants to do a great work in anybody, he first has to humble that person. Sandy and I, we have a passage we often read from Luther in our morning devotions. We love it a lot. I think you'll like it. It's God's nature to make something out of nothing. Hence, one who is not yet nothing out of him, God can't make anything. You like that? It is God's nature to make something out of nothing. Hence, one who is not yet nothing out of him, God cannot make anything. I believe that the most important day that I had in my 10 years as president of Covenant Seminary was the third day. We moved from Jackson, Mississippi to St. Louis on January 1st, and half the way it rained, and then the rest of half the way it snowed. So when we got there, there was about five inches of snow on the ground. And, uh, of course, we didn't have um, any classes on the first, and for that matter, there were no classes on the second. So on the third day... I was going to my office. This was going to be my first day to arrive on the job. And I had my brand new suit on and my brand new shoes. I even had a Mont Blanc pin in my pocket. And I'll tell you why. Because somebody said to me, who worked there, you don't look like a president. So I decided I'll do the best I can, you know. And so I got all these duds to make myself look somewhat like a president and I was going along Conway Road. That's the road that runs in front of the seminary. There are no sidewalks. And the snow was beginning to melt. They had plowed it up, and there were these banks, but it was beginning to melt, and the sludge was going down into the middle of the road. And just about the time I got to a big puddle, a black SUV came along and just and splashed all over my brand-new briefcase, my brand-new suit, my brand-new shoes, and it was like God said to me, Paul, you know, you think you've you got a lot of good ideas. You think you know what it's going to take to build this seminary. I want to tell you something. None of your ideas are going to work. If I don't show up, you're in trouble, Paul. And I prayed right then and said, God, I believe that. I believe that if you don't show up, this is going to be a train wreck. I believe that was the most important event in those 10 years. Now, God blessed us. We were the fastest, I've told you before, we were the fastest growing seminary in the country for 10 years. But it was because, I think, 
a whole lot of people, not just myself, finally got to the point of saying, we give up. You know, everything we've tried hasn't worked. God, you're going to have to do something. We don't know what it is. You see, that's the best place you can be. When you get backed up to the wall and all you've got is God, when you really humble yourself before him, that is the best place you're ever going to be. Humility is a gift of grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, we deserve nothing. He dies for us. Through his great sacrifice, we are adopted. It's as if Jesus moves aside and says, take my place. And then on top of that, he sends his spirit to indwell our lives. You see, if that's all true, then no other response is adequate. Other than humility. God, really, if you do everything, then I really do have to bow before you. Lord, you do in my life what you want to do, not what I want to do. And then he sends his spirit into our life. In Romans 8, 17, it says, The spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. If children and heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. You know what it is to be a joint heir with anybody? It means that what belongs to them belongs to you. Uh, you know, like Sandy and I, we have a joint bank account. So Sandy can only go down there and withdraw half the money, and I can go down and withdraw the other half, right? Uh, you understand that, right? <laughs> I hope that doesn't scare any of you if you've got these joint bank accounts. Everything that I have belongs to Sandy, and everything Sandy has belongs to me. Do you see what that text says? Everything that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ belongs to me because it's been given to me. I haven't earned it. I don't deserve it, but it belongs to me. That ought to humble us. And that's the kind of salve that Paul wants to bring to the church in Philippi, and it is the same kind of medicine that we all need in our lives at every single point. It's the strongest medicine to bring healing that God can bring us. In the second chapter of Exodus, we have a story about a man named Moses. You know about him. And uh, he, he has been raised in the uh, palace of the Pharaoh. And he has been told by his mother that he's going to be the savior of his people. And now comes an opportunity. And he kills a, a taskmaster. Uh, he is discovered at least by one of uh, the Israelites himself. And he gets scared and he runs off. Now he's 40 years old when that happens. 40 years old. He's a mature man. He runs off and hides in the desert, takes care of sheep for another 40 years. What do you think God was doing with him for 40 years? I think he was making him ready to be the deliverer of his people. I think that 40 years before he was not ready because he thought he could do it. He was, as it says in Acts, he was educating all the wisdom and knowledge of the Egyptians. He was a mighty man. And you see, he has to come to the place where when God comes to him in a burning bush and talks to him and says, you are going to lead my people out of Egypt. 
In verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech. I'm slow of tongue. God doesn't say that there, but I, I can just feel it, you know, between the words, now you're ready. <laughs> now you're ready to be the one to lead my people out. Calvin said this, the only condition for spiritual progress is that we live humbly before God and before man. The only condition for spiritual progress is that we live humbly before God and before man. You want to bring this medicine to any situation? This is what saves marriages. When a man can really say to his wife, I am sorry. When a wife can say to her husband, I forgive you. I can tell you, this is what cures addiction. When a person is willing to admit, I need help. Temptation. It's this medicine that deals with temptation. When I can acknowledge the fact of the reality of sin in my life and of daily needing to walk with Christ, hanging on to Him. That's how we defeat sin in our life. It's not by saying, I can do this, I can handle this, I'm bigger than this. That is how you will fall. But when you say, Jesus, I need you. I need you today to walk with me. That's how you deal with the sin in your life. One of my favorite illustrations of humility comes from about 1880. It's, it's about two great preachers, both preaching and having great churches in London at the same time. One you probably know, Charles Spurgeon. The other, Joseph Parker. Maybe you don't know him. But Joseph Parker got up one Sunday and said in the sermon you know, we need to think about Mr. Spurgeon because the orphanage he has uh, is, is a work in which most of the people are very, very poor. Well, there was a newspaper person there in the audience, and they'd like to stir up trouble and so on, and so he published an article in the newspaper the next day, Parker criticizes Spurgeon's orphanage. Well, that angered Spurgeon. And so he got up the next Sunday and he just blasted Joseph Parker that he would have the gall to say something like that. He laid him low with words. Well, there were several newspaper reporters in the audience in Joseph Parker's church the next Sunday waiting to see what Joseph Parker was going to say. And he got up and said, friends, I love Spurgeon. And I love what he's doing. And you know what we should do? We should take up a love offering for his orphanage. And according to the story, they had to empty the plates three times. Well, Spurgeon had to get up the next Sunday. (laughs) Humbled himself, didn't he? He said this, Mr. Parker, you gave me what I needed and not what I deserved. You see how that heals? How that humility heals? 
the healing power of humility. I want to encourage you, look for ways this week and places this week where, where you can exercise the healing power of humility in your life and in the life of the people around you. Look like the Lord Jesus Christ, who was in the form of God and thought it not robbery to equal with God, but he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Let us pray. Lord, we ask for the grace of humility. We realize nothing compares to you, that our salvation is completely of you, and your greatness should humble us. Your gift of salvation should humble us. Our sin should humble us as well. What we have in Christ is ours now in part, but before long, we shall be made perfect in heaven. So we worship you this day humbly. In Christ's name, amen.